Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Lorelai Weissel, and since it's back to school season, we are going to do awkward icebreakers and say one fun fact about ourselves. So my fun fact is that I'm really heckin' gay. I'm Ashley Barrow, and my fun fact is that it's not back to school for me because I'm in college and I go to class in the summer. I'm Carrie Thomas, and my one fun fact about myself is I bought a mandolin because I felt like it. <laughs> my grandpa has a mandolin. I played violin all through high school, and then I haven't played it since, and I've just been wanting to play violin, but at the same time, like, mandolin's just the same exact thing, so I can just kind of f around with that for a while was it captain corelli's mandolin no it was a 20 dollar mandolin so we're getting our values worth i i just want to see if i even like enjoy it before i actually commit to anything like solid wood that's a shame then because nick cage didn't touch <laughs> it and he's weird and cursed so this is now ashley's one year anniversary with the podcast Yay. so ashley congrats on making it to one year because you didn't think you were going to make it this far, even. I'm one year old. Yeah, we've we've very much appreciated having you around. Uh, you have been very great, especially for the Ravnica episodes, because um, Ravnica's fun, and, and you have been very fun and enjoyable, and I'm glad you've stuck with us. So thanks, and I'm and, and glad to... Cl- Rather, you're glad for Annie, right? Well, and and yeah, like Annie, Annie buying the show and becoming our president and CEO was really good too. So like, that's good stuff. We have one small piece of Throne of Eldraine news that this week we got our brand new planeswalker revealed in Oko. He's a shape-shifting fair folk planeswalker. So he's some sort of fey thing. And he is all about kind of tearing down the pretenses of power structures uh, kind of freewheeling and uh, a little trickstery. He is still, after all, Fey, and and they are they are tricksters by nature. He is so much fun. I'm very excited uh, to read him in the novel. Um, very excited to see Kate Elliott's uh, take on him compared to how I wrote him for Arena. Uh, don't forget the Wildered Quest, the Throne of Eldraine novel by Kate, is going to be out this week, September fourth. And that's going to be available on ebook for $4 on all the major places you can get ebooks. And then preview season starts next week. And then Arena will update. And then that'll be great. And then I can actually finally talk about Eldraine. So he's super empowered. You know, we're all about empowered female characters. But I think that it's important that male characters also get empowered. So, and as we know, the less clothes you have on, and the more nipple pasties you have on, the more empowered you are. We have a little behind-the-scenes argument about whether or not he has nipples, but we wouldn't know because his outfit's just that empowered. Again, I I don't think he has nipples because the way his jacket is set up, they would chafe right off. Which may be why he doesn't have nipples. We don't know. That might be explored in the story, but probably not. <laughs> you know what would make him like slightly more empowered, though? Like, Tasa Karlov's original boob window... But just on his ass, you know? <laughs> just all out. Assless chaps, essentially. Uh, he's already wearing leather pants, so that's not that far off. Um, but you you do mention empowerment, and uh, it is worth noting that he is, um, although he's not human, uh, his his facial design, he has, he's, uh, he has an East Asian male face. So um, to have a character like this not be white-coated and get to be, like, the sexiest person 
in a set is neat. That That's something you don't see a lot. It breaks a lot of um, East Asian male stereotypes, especially in American media. So that's really good to see with his character. And uh, again, I, I, I had so much fun writing him and I, I want to talk specifics, which I can't get into yet, but we'll get there. Um, so yeah, I'll drain soon. Um, and finally, for news things, uh, speaking about future things, uh, next week, we have a very exciting episode. Gavin Verhey will be back with us. Uh, Gavin, uh, of course, works for Wizards of the Coast and is a designer and product architect and does all sorts of fun things. He is delightful. Uh, we recorded an episode with him uh, earlier this year to talk about War of the Spark, which was a heck of a lot of fun. So he's going to be back. And we are going to talk about kind of if-when questions regarding legendary creatures and planeswalkers and old characters. And and, and just talk about, you know, uh, what goes into taking old characters and making new cards for them or remaking cards for characters who had crappy cards. You know, people like Gerard and uh, just, just that kind of thing. So that'll be a lot of fun next week. So stay tuned for that. So then this week we are kind of in a, a, a nice space where we don't have a whole lot to worry about. So we are digging back into the mailbag because we have been so bad about answering listener questions. So we are doing mailbag episode this week because those are fun and we get to talk about all kinds of things. And there are some questions in here that are really, uh, <laughs> this will be fun. Um, we're going to start with, with a pretty standard one for this podcast, though. Um, this question is from T- Toasty Nuts eighty six on one Tumblr. of the wisest community um, members, you know. <laughs> uh, so the question is: uh, Do we know how long each planeswalker has been a planeswalker? In other words, at what time in relation to each other did each walker's spark ignite? I think Ugin and Watley are opposite ends of the scale of of the Gatewatch. Teferi obviously had his first, but is also the most recent to get a spark. I think Ajani is actually the quote-unquote youngest, which makes it odd that he's the wise elder at the end of Aether Revolt, telling the kids not to go to Amonkhet. Of course, he has fought Bolas before. So, so this is this is basically a timeline question and of when did these characters spark and why. So, um, I'm just gonna go through kind of in chronologically from the oldest planeswalkers that we have definitive dates for. Uh, to the present. Obviously, there's a lot more planeswalkers that do exist in the story, but if we don't have dates or we don't know their origin story or their sparking story, then we obviously can't talk about them in this kind of situation. It's correct that Ugin is one end of the scale. Um, so the Chronicle of Bola story uh, sets the Elder Dragon War uh, 20 to 25,000 years ago. Um, it's the mytho-histories of Dominari and dates aren't very exact. So we know um, Ugin sparked upon being betrayed by Nicobolus when Nicobolus uh, manipulated a bunch of those humans into killing each other and taking over their society. And uh, it turns out his twin was evil! Who could have seen that coming? Um, and that kind of trauma, familial trauma, uh, sent Ugin flying into the Blind Eternities. It's implied thousands of years later, Ugin returns to Dominaria and sees Nicobolas, and and Bolas is bragging about how he's conquered this whole this whole island in the Birth Mountain and is waging the Elder Dragon War. And Ugin is like, "Man, these are small potatoes. There's a whole multiverse out here that I've been exploring. You're kind of a loser. You're like the 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 champion of ants here, and that makes Bolas 
very mad and feel very inadequate. And uh, his his raw jealousy and and rage ignites his planeswalker spark, and uh, thus they become some of the earliest known planeswalkers. You could say that Ugin was busy studying the ghost fire blade. That may technically be correct, yes, because one of the earliest things he does is go to Tarkir. So then we fast forward a whole bunch of years to about 7,000 years ago when Sauron Markov ascends, when his granddaddy turns him into a vampire, which was apparently incredibly traumatic for him, even though like he volunteers. But that whole transformation process uh, is, is kind of... Uh, Innistrad vampires are kind of alchemical vampires, they are not undead, but they have this bloodlust and this immortality that uh, happen through demonic things and um, angel blood, and it's a whole thing. Edgar's kind of a jerk, <laughs> Edgar Markov. I mean, if you're going by like the original, original story, this has kind of been a race in recent retellings, but there was supposed to be a famine there, and that was his justification. Yeah. That hasn't been mentioned since the original block, though, so who knows if it's still technically his justification there. Uh, you know, if if your problem is a famine, you could either get good at farming or you could just, like, become immortal bloodlusty vampires. You know, whatever. They're, they are equally valid options. Why didn't they just make, like, a cool plant race that they could just eat endlessly? That works for a lot of famines. Because uh, they don't know how to do that yet because they can't steal the technology from the ebon hand who don't exist yet, who may have gotten the technology from Frexia as a whole thing. I'm, We're not going to get on that. Uh, so about a thousand years later, Nahiri ascends. Uh, we don't we don't know how, um, but she is a relatively new planeswalker um, around the time of the sealing of Eldrazi. And Soren uh, found her and has kind of taken her under his wing. I think there's an implication that her first planeswalk was to Innistrad. Uh, Soren makes a comment to Liliana about how she's not worthy for him to like take under his wings, so so I I kind of interpret from that that Nahiri might have blooped to Innistrad first, um, but that's not confirmed. That's speculatory, but it would explain her and Soren's relationship and why it was so toxic later. I think I don't know. Maybe we'll hear that story one day. I'd like that. Four thousand four hundred ninety-seven years ago, Urza ascends after using the Golgothian Silex to obliterate Argoth and end the Antiquities War. There's some contention on whether or not he had his own Planeswalker Spark or Glacian's latent spark inside the Mightstone and the Weakstone became inhabited in his soul when they became his eyes. Um, we don't have confirmation either way, but he was a Planeswalker regardless, so that's his sparking moment. 1,606 years ago, Jaya Ballard ascends as Joda shows her her reflection. Very aggressively. <laughs> very aggressively with a magic mirror because she's possessed by Marisil. She ascends as a planeswalker and bloops into the blind eternities and uses her incredible magical might to purge Marisil from her body forever, finally killing the the pretender is is his card name. Uh, 1,253 years ago, Teferi sparks when he gets caught in a time bubble and catches on fire, and it takes everyone else 20 years to get him out, but he's only in there for seconds. And then he bloops away and does other things and forgets he's a planeswalker a lot, apparently. Um, and then uh, he had given up his spark during the mending and then recently got it back by crunching a power stone with his spark in it. 355 years ago, Karn ascends 
when the legacy weapon is activated and either Urza's spark or Glacian's spark, or both if both have sparks, it's really complicated because uh, uh, Urza's, uh, the Might Stone and the Weak Stone fuse into Karn's body. So Urza's, whatever spark is inside Urza goes into Karn at that moment. And Karn becomes a planeswalker and goes off and does his own little projects that go horribly wrong because he's basically Urza's kid and inherits all those failures. So about 200 years ago, Liliana Vess tries to save her brother Josu's life, and in doing so uses a slight bit of necromancy, and things go wrong, and Josu becomes a lich. Oops. And the trauma of, of bringing horrific pain to basically the only person Liliana loves and cares about uh, ignited her spark, and she bloops off to Innistrad. 60 years ago, during the mending, Venser's spark ignites when he's using this teleportation device called the Ambulator, which uh, I'm correct that it allows him to travel through the Eternities before he ascends, right? Technically, yeah. It's sort of. It's weird. It was, yeah. He doesn't really, like, formally ascend at any point. They just realize, like, hey, you're a planeswalker, but you have a mutated spark. That's just the new spark. That's the new model. Much worse than the old one. 40 years ago, Nissa Ravain shows up on uh, a mountain in Akum, the volcanic region of Zendikar, and encounters Emrakul, who is there. And that's like Emrakul pierces into her mind, and uh, that is traumatic as hell. And so she ascends as a planeswalker. Um, Akum is where the Eldrazi Titans were imprisoned, specifically on Zendikar. So that's not good for her she's the only planeswalker that's ignited from a jump scare so <laughs> actually like kind of for real though not really because because she had sensed emrakul's like knotted black dark corrupted energy whatever um so it was there were there was a lot of suspense to and build up and then a jump scare i did i i do like that as an origin story like coming face to face with cosmic horror shattering your brain but instead of you doing the cosmic horror thing where you are like completely shattered as an individual you become a superhero that's that's neat uh 20 years ago vraska ascends during the dusk end purges which are a huge bout of police brutality by the azorius where uh, teenage vraska is rounded up and thrown into prison and beaten and it's horrific and terrible 17 years ago tezzeret ascends when he tries to join the seekers of karmet on on Esper, who are trying to find the secret to making more Ethereum. And he learns that it's all just baloney fabricated by Nicol Bolas. And the trauma of being lied to sends him right to Nicol Bolas. And that does not go well for him. 16 years ago, Elspeth ascends. Uh, at some point, she she grew up in, under, in a Fruxian prison and... That's very traumatic, and as she's about to be carved up into raw materials, she planeswalks to Theros, where she finds God's End freshly fallen from Nyx, and sort of is a hero for a little bit, and then gets to be an actual hero at one point, and is now still dead. Twelve years ago, Chandra ascends when she is about to be executed. That is in her origin story, and she is just a little baby child. She's, what, 11? Um, You know, very normal to execute 11-year-olds because the consulate made some great choices hiring Baral. 
11 years ago, Jace and Gideon both ignite. Jace from a traumatic mental battle with his manipulative mentor, Alhammer at the Sphinx, that crushes his own mind and leaves him devoid of most of his memories. Gideon sparks after he has too much Twitter clout and tries to kill a god, and Erebos laughs and ends up killing all his friends because Gideon is indestructible and is fine, but he, he got the only people he considers family dead, and that sucks when you're a white-aligned planeswalker. The question is correct that Ajani is very young as a planeswalker, only four years ago in the story, when his brother is murdered and he has to seek out his killer. So he he bloops over from Naya to Jund and gets pushed into a volcano by Sarkin. It's a whole thing. Not pushed. He, he voluntarily jumps. <laughs> he's, he's borderline coerced. Mm. But yes, Ajani, Ajani is older-ish than everybody else. He was already an adult when he sparked. So he, he is still older than most of the Gatewatch, even though he sparked more recently. So he is wiser, and he is like a reasonable person. Um, a lot of the Gatewatch are disasters by their by design, by their origin stories. So you can't necessarily blame them for that. Then uh, about a year ago, Narset, while digging through the secret origins of the dragon clans uh, discovered the history of the Jeskai and realized, well, there's so ho- there's so much more to know about my world. And that sense of enlightenment pushed her into the blind eternities. And she kind of stood on the precipice of planeswalking and looked out to another plane and said, wow, this is weird and neat. And then stayed on Tarkir. Like she has one of the most fascinating first planeswalk stories. Um, be because of that moment of like sheer control over her metaphysical self. Uh, I, I thought that was really neat. And then this year, uh, Samut Sparks, during uh, the Hour of Devastation, when she swoops in and helps save Hazaret, her god, from the Scorpion God, and this sense of religious devotion uh, ignites her spark. Watley, her spark ignites. Uh, is it? I forget. Is it during the fight with Angrath? Yeah, it was just now, a few seconds ago. Um, anyway, she she sparks and and bumps up against the Immortal Sun and has to stay on Ixalan until that whole thing is solved. And then uh, Teo uh, sparks during the War of the Spark after seeing the call from the beacon that Ral ignites and then bloops his way to Ravnica because that's the only way to do that because that's the only place he kind of metaphysically knows at that point. And then he gets caught up in a Elder Dragon's war and does okay. So that is the very long-winded answer to the question in depth. So that that gives you an idea of, of the known existing Planeswalker origins. So we are going to go off on some more fun questions now. So there's a question from uh, Pekinter13. If you could kind of time spiral major planeswalkers, what would their new color identities be and what would they do? I would make a Bant Nickel Bolas that group hugs people. So um, time spiral was used here. I think this is a reference to Planar Chaos, which had a cycle of five legendary creatures that were color shifted into different colors from alternate realities. I think I would like to see, is it Jaya? Sort of, you know, focusing on the monastery. Plus, is it cool? So, it's not that deep. I think I would like to see any other color of Garuk. Like, besides, I I guess I would take a mono black Garuk. I would take also, 
literally any other color identity. Not that his, like, druidness exactly translates well to much else in the game, but I think he's just kind of solidly such a monocolor character that I'm more interested to see what the justification for him would be in any other color. Uh, I, I think you could keep a lot of his visual design and make him work as a mono black character that instead of like instead of doing the druidic hunter thing do like the sport hunting thing or like the poacher yeah. thing um that would be a, a cool thing um i think it would be really interesting to shift liliana into white to see what her life would have been like if she had stayed a cleric i don't know what would have sparked a mono white liliana and i don't know how she would end up but like she has a lot of magical ability and like i don't know like how is the raven man story different if she is white aligned and actually trying to heal people than if she's black aligned and kind of rebelling and doing necromancy like is she manipulated in different ways does she deal with that in different ways um does she because like, like Johnny does some cleric stuff, but like a mono white Liliana would be like a legitimate party healer, and and a legitimate like medical cleric planeswalker, and I think that would be cool. Like like imagine a Liliana who's uses her planeswalking powers to travel from plane to plane to help heal people fighting in wars and support people. Like that would be a fascinating twist on a character, and like a total polar opposite. Really, I kind of just want to see like any healer in story though. <laughs> like or any healing action in story because i feel like it's just kind of like oh that was just deflected and defended with the one thing that comes to mind is uh in the story where kiora and jorien go for the biden kiora breaks her leg and uh she she uses healing magic on herself to to mend her her leg and and seal up the wound uh so kiora can do it apparently but she's not going to be a cleric that heals other people because she's like, really selfish. She's not a main healer. She's an off healer. She'll heal herself and then move on. <laughs> Kiora, Kiora is, um, if 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 we're going to break that down to kind of party dynamics, uh, Kiora is the Leroy Jenkins of the party. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. She is the one who runs in by herself shouting and screws everything up. I adore her. I will give a bonus answer of if we could get a black green Sarah, we wouldn't need to change those abilities. Uh, you're kicked off the podcast. I'm sorry. I resign. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Jay's not on this week. I can make that joke. Uh, so our next question is from Spreewald Fuchs. asks, uh, what is your people's favorite flavor plus mechanics home run card? So this is a reference. We've had this question sitting for a while. Uh, so there's car cards where the flavor and mechanics work in unison really, really, really well to kind of make a, a really complete full card. And I have a very personal answer for this one because uh, it's from Modern Horizons, uh, which which I worked on, and that is Feaster of Fools. So Feaster of Fools is the six mana demon with Convoke and Devour two. Uh, so so mechanically, what you what you do is if you have a bunch of little creatures, you can use them to convoke it out, and then it can devour them and be huge. And uh, the the art and and card name convey the you know the uh, leopards eating my face party memes like that's kind of the feast of a full story where where these 
these cultists summon a demon and the demon ends up eating them all and and i think that plays out really well with the card and uh really well with the mechanics and and that whole thing is just like just it's so adorable it's so cute um i'm gonna say any eldrazi i know that's not really specific or really super exciting answer but i like how like the way they play they just have this kind of weirdness to them also they just kind of screw everything up they might not win but like they they really screw stuff up mine is for the ashleyversary it is mount Coralia from plane chase the, yes. the the best playing card actually um very innocuous mechanics and actually uses pressure counters which are from like way way back in magic's history but it's on the plane of regatha it's mount Coralia. It is at the beginning of your end step, put a pressure counter on Mount Coralia. When you planeswalk away from Mount Coralia, it deals damage equal to the number of pressure counters on it to each creature and each planeswalker. It's all based on some very, very kind of interwoven story bits relating to the novel The Purifying Fire. And specifically, the Order of Heliod on Regatha had kind of made a organized threat against Carol Keep that they either hand over Chandra to the Order of Heliod, or um, they would just kind of like kill everybody in Carol Keep and attack it. So Chandra is kind of like put into the planeswalker dilemma of I can just planeswalk away from this and leave it, but then everybody at Carol Keep is going to have to deal with the Order of Heliod and likely many will die. So she instead turns herself over, blah blah blah, story goes on, she wins. Um, everything's happy but it gives an interesting like i guess mechanical justification well she killed a bunch of people first yeah i mean that's the good part though because they were kind of shitty people (laughs) but um yeah it's an extremely flavorful card and except for one thing at that point they had never said it was volcano is it a volcano i mean what other pressure would be in there it's a volcano now Oh, it's it's the I thought it was the pressure of the Order of Heliod because they were like doing their weird like mini attacks on it, trying to pressure out. No, it explodes. It's a pressure under the rock, and it explodes, and it causes an eruption. I don't believe that, but that is my flavorful card. Well, that's my galaxy brain take. Um, speaking of plane chase, though, I really like the Sarah's Round one, where when you planeswalk away, you destroy everything. Because that's what happens when a plane collapses, which happens to Sarah's Realm. Plane chase is fun. Can we just agree that that's, like, just the, the best format, also the worst? Uh, yeah, I enjoy it a lot. All right, uh, so our next question is, can you guys list all the references there are to a Viking plane, since there's speculation that will be coming soon? That's from FIFO underscore VS. And because I'm in a position where I really can't speculate about the future, I will not be answering this question. So take it away, folks. Skyrim. I mean, it depends on if you get to the Cloud District often. I think that's just a trope that people really want that we haven't really done. Yeah, it's like Viking World and Wild West are just like, oh, there's... Viking World admittedly has much, much more justification around it. It kind of just goes like Viking world we've seen. People are obsessed with Kaldheim, like, even though we've got half a story there, maybe like 
three quarters of a story there if you count both duels and the weird Ixalan story where we got to glimpse it for a second. I have a piece of fan fiction there. Yay, good for you. It's like a cool world, and I think people are just like interested in seeing in the same way that people are, were like obsessed with Arcos and then were disappointed when it ended up as Theros. I don't know if Kaldheim will kind of stick around. I assume with the reference drops, if we are doing a Viking world and if we are doing Kaldheim, they would be one and the same. But there is like, people just piece a lot of things together, especially like Saskia, I know was the popular um, speculation. And then that related to Lysia, I believe in the following commander set who had like some kind of interwoven flavor text inside of um, the commander bio. We don't know what plane that is. A lot of people say it's Viking plane just because of the woad. We'll find out one day, I suppose. I think people wanted uh, the Arthurian plane, and now we got it. So there's probably probably a pretty good chance we'll get the Viking plane. All right, our next question is basically only aimed at me. So uh, the question is from at the legendary geek. The question is, which Muppet Babies are the Gatewatch? And uh, this is mostly aimed at me because Muppet Babies stopped airing before either of you were born. So, <laughs> obviously, Ajani is, is the nanny. Um, I, I think that's pretty clear. Because um, the, the only character, the character who's, like, in charge and, and has their stuff together. I, I, I think that's obvious. Um, and I think it's pretty clear that uh, Liliana would be Baby Miss Piggy because super selfish. Gets trickier from there. Think Jace is baby Scooter. Scooter's a huge dork and is really nervous, and that sounds like Jace. I will agree with that, only knowing the adult version of Scooter. I can't decide if Chandra is baby Gonzo or baby Animal. They're both weird and goblins. I don't think Nissa is any of these people. Um, I don't know if Gideon is any of these people. Baby Fozzie is definitely Baby Teferi, or regular Teferi, whatever. I don't know how this question is going. Um, mostly just because of the jokes. Gideon might be Baby Rolf. Rolf is kind of the confident and, and friendshipy one. That leaves Kaya, who I also don't think is anybody on here. If Chandra is Baby Animal, Kaya might be Baby Gonzo. Because Kaya kind of goes and does her own thing and is like super confident about it and tells jokes and that that's kind of Gonzo's stick. So, so I don't know. I th- I think Nissa is the one that is not really on here. Nissa can be Baby Animal's drum set. <laughs> so our next question, um, this is also kind of aimed at me from um, at uh, PRJCTMTG. So I think that's supposed to be shorter for Project MTG. So the question is, would love a primer on the history of slivers. I have good news because someday I'm going to write it. Uh, I've been thinking about it for literally years. And, and uh, my intent was to get it published sometime around... Uh, uh, I was I was going to publish it last year. And, and then very shortly after I decided that, um, I started working on Modern Horizons, which had slivers in it. I was like... Oh, well, this explodes some of the things I was going to write, and it would make more sense to write this and have it out when Modern Horizons comes out. And and since then, like, the podcast has taken off, and um, I'm not really writing content much anymore, but uh, uh, I have aspirations to publish the Sliver piece on MTG Nexus at some point. 
um, harass me about it. I, don't, I guess don't harass me about it. Pressure me about it and and make me do it because um, I would like to get that out because I think that's neat. So our next question is from at Kriv underscore J. And the question is, uh, pre-mending, Karn created the planet that we become mirrored in. But post-mending, I'm a little confused what Karn's abilities actually are. Can you speak to the metaphysics of what he's capable of? Have his powers changed since getting Venza's heart? It's a rock. He doesn't really have any kind of signature spell in general. Like, he's not... I, he doesn't really have a signature ability, I guess is the better way to put it. Um, he is just kind of there and kind of just really, really hates Phyrexia, just like his dad did. He uh, is aware that he's naked now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will say it, kind of the thing that is consistent in Dominaria and War of the Spark is that uh, he's still an excellent artificer. So he, he builds construct workers to help unearth the Silex on Dominaria and then uh I really one of my favorite moments in War of the Spark is is when Ral is talking about these goggles he engineered that let him see who was a planeswalker and he's like really bragging about it and uh um they're trying to figure out a way to like convey that ability to everybody in the party and Carnage just like just give them to me and he just like holds them immediately intuits how they work and casts a spell that lets everybody do it and Ral is like what the hell? I'm kind of a loser at this. And Karna's like, uh, yeah, I'm just kind of good with this kind of stuff. Deck fading could never. <laughs> well, Dak's a disaster. He can't do anything. Um, he can fall on his ass. That's what he's good at. Um, but Karn basically has the same powers he had pre-mending, which we don't actually see a lot of, because he gets talked about a lot, and then he shows up and talks a lot, but he doesn't actually get to do much in the story. The next question is, uh, what authors would you want to bring in to do magic story? What lessons do you think Watsi has learned and or should learn about the new model of, of story? And that's from Flamel7 on our Discord server. I think we should bring in the archive of our own squad of people who write things that give me nightmares. <laughs> I don't know any any specific writers that I would want. I, I I think that I think they've done an excellent job so far in uh in hiring the outside authors and like like I can tell you I would definitely want to see um people like Nikki Drayden back. I'd love to see Brandon Sanderson write another Davriel novel. As for other people, uh, like I don't read a lot a lot of books. Uh reading is very difficult for me. So um it's not a leisure activity that I very much enjoy. I I do it to Mostly when I need to get knowledge about things, which is why I mostly just read magic fiction, because that's important for my entertainment and knowledge and work. Um, so I don't know... Oh, oh wait. Well, I, the, the cheaty answer is me, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I would love to write, um, maybe not like a block story or anything, but I'd love to write like some, some offhand like short story fiction, like maybe one little short story or like a little three-parter, like Vivian's story. Um, I would love to do that, but that is braggy and arrogant of me, which I guess is on brand. My answer is George R.R. R. Martin, because, you know, he'd do a great Garuk story where he kills everybody. But, like, seriously, I, yeah, I magic's such a top-heavy IP. Um, you kind of just get, and they pretty, like, outside of having a continuity consultant they don't really seem to have 
as many resources in place to actually catch the authors up to speed in any kind of like actually efficient way. The way that Greg Weissman talked about it on Daily MTG was just getting like, and Mark Rosewater's podcast was getting like shipped more and more materials of backstory that he needed to read, or that was optional reading, obviously, um, for the characters. There is such a huge backlog of magic story, and they're just, there aren't the resources publicly for fans to keep up with them, and based on Greg's testimony from writing for War of the Spark, there are obviously aren't like condensed or um, summarized resources for people to be able to deliver that information to the writers internally. So it's just a lot of work for anybody who wants to kind of hop into MDG, even with something as like small as um, having like not as many returning characters as War of the Spark, for instance. You just kind of need to know a lot about magic's worlds and how the multiverse works and if you're doing anything that's spanning more than one world or more than one character there's just a lot to catch up on and so i don't really wish that on anybody um magic yeah magic has had a very very rough history with bringing writers on and then letting them do their own thing and then it not turning out entirely well or telling them to do too much and it not turning out the greatest so um hopefully my magic strikes that balance at some point in the future but until then eh, i'm not gonna recommend i think so there's a lot in there i can't comment on because of my work but um i i think i think you did point out uh something just in the last year that they've done a lot better on so like dominario was not written with a continuity consultant um and it probably could have used it Jay got hired later in the year uh, from when that was written, and uh, I'm I'm super happy for Jay about about him getting that job, um, and and I think having someone uh, who's invested and can do that has uh, made a lot of the moments in stories better. See, um, I'm not though because I always try to catch him on something just so I can get his job, and it never works. Well, you just got to get good. Yeah. It's tricky because it's a new it's a new process, but I think they're getting to the point where they're better figuring out how to manage a lot of those um, onboarding things. Um, like, so, like one of the things I was really impressed with Kate Elliott about for Chronicle of Bolas is is how many little details that she just like nails. Um, like, there's a tiny little offhand reference to Dominaria being named as the Song of Dominia. Um, which is one of the deepest cuts that Magic Story has done recently, um, and like that's that's so good. Um, I'm I'm really that's part of why I'm really excited for the Wilder Quest. It is a tricky thing. Um, that it that is that is kind of a a baseline thing when you write for an existing IP is is that there is a lot of uh backstory especially um magic's unique thing is that his for its entire history has mostly kept a single continuity so with comics uh so like with marvel comics you are going to be playing around with different universes you can do projects you, you know if you want to do a new weird different thing you just create another parallel universe and uh magic he hasn't had that luxury yet. Uh, the Netflix is actually going to be our first big official kind of parallel thing. Um, th there's been lots of little projects that are that are questionable 
um, with with how they fit in the canon. But but the Netflix one is going to be uh, the first kind of licensed IP big project like that, uh, which I think I personally I, I'm very fascinated to see. I'm, I'm very interested to seeing how that show turns out. Really going to be getting into the new uh, MCU, the Magic Cinematic Universe. Please. <laughs> Can't wait for a bunch of really crappy sequels. I think at some point we'll probably devote a section of an episode more to talking about that. Um, probably, I, I know we've kind of privately in our own private chats have talked a little bit about this um, regarding Eldraine. And, and I think there's there's going to be stuff in that narrative that that brings us back to these kinds of topics. So I'll look forward to that when we talk about the Eldraine novel, um, which I'm very, again, very excited to read and talk about because I, I love Eldraine. So our, I think our last question for the episode is from... Castellanesetti. I I don't know where if that's a name break in there somewhere. I don't know where that is. Sorry, I apologize. So the question is, if if you guys had to tell the MTG story, um, and you know, I assume as it exists in a compelling, interesting way, where would you start? That's an interesting question, uh, because Magic has now had twenty six years of story and. Where is the beginning? Um, if we're going chronologically, it's Chronicle of Bolas. If we're doing real world narratively, it's probably the Brothers War. If we are doing it in terms of where the story is at the moment and where the best on-ramping part would be for that, then it would be Magic Origins. And um, if I had to make a new thing, so so I so I guess the uh, for the hypothetical for this question would be uh, I'm, I'm going to use like if if we had to make a Netflix series that told Magic's existing story, uh, how would you start that? And and I don't think I would start in any of those places. Um, if I was going to do a thing that I wanted to use to tell a section of Magic's story, but then also introduce characters, um, I think I would take something that was individually interesting and showcases some characters. Um, so potentially something like Agents of Artifice um, might be a uh, a better a better way to do that because that gets you um, lots of drama. It gets you, uh, introduces um, multiple important characters. So uh, mostly Jason Liliana, Tezzer, and Nicol Bolas. Sorry, Baltrice. <laughs> Baltrice Eraser, but okay. <laughs> Um, it's hard to erase someone who is that tall. Um, so, so I, I think a story like that would be a good introduction. Um, I, I don't know. Ravnica might, something with Ravnica might be interesting just because it's a good way of explaining the colors. I don't know. What would y'all do? I think I would easily start with Agents of Artifice, like chronologically. Might not be the most interesting beginning, but... I mean, it's pretty interesting. Uh, like you said, it establishes important characters, and I don't think you really need to go any farther back than that within the story. I think anything before that can just be backstory to be able to follow like the current plot. I mean, I'm just going to be the third voice here and just say <laughs> Agents of Artifice. I think the Planeswalker novels were a home run for Magic actually trying to sell itself as a fantasy story. And also explain how magic, I guess, functions both as a game and as like a world. Being able to visit multiple planes in the Planeswalker, um, Planeswalker novel series, as it was called at the time, was like the biggest strength. You could actually show weird, obscure stuff that you wouldn't get anywhere else, like revisit Kamigawa, um, Plane of Dearden that we never saw again, <laughs> Regatha. It's 
anything that you really wanted to do within some limitation and they also didn't need to have as strong of a bond in between each other for them to make sense you understood that jace was working from the consortium while he was doing this thing in the purifying fire while he was trying to retrieve the scroll but you didn't have to see that as a actual like bridge between the two things you just kind of knew that that happened and some of that was supplemented by the comics obviously but planeswalker novels were just like a plus way to do it and i think agents of artifice kind of hit it out of the ballpark at the time and i mean still sticks up to um still stands up today yeah hot take the planeswalker novels were good that's a very that's a very hot take because that includes testamental that's why i said it was hot um what because tezzeret's naked the whole time bingo <laughs> um, but I, I agree, and and I've liked a lot of the things. Uh, so so recently, so last year we got the um, Davriel novella, and uh, this year we're we're getting um, War of the Spark Forsaken later, which is kind of its own thing following War of the Spark. Um, and, and I think I think those are going to be really interesting stories. Um, like like I I I love Children of the Nameless. Um, that I think stands alone as a really good introductory story to Magic the Gathering. But is also like just mad entertaining on its own. Brandon Sanders should like crush that thing. And I think I guess that's my difficulty with it is that magic excels when you just kind of give the author creative freedom to work inside the space and throw some characters at them. And then when you kind of have serialized stuff, and this is no offense to kind of cons of Tarkir origins through War of the Spark. Or Eldraine, for that matter. But a lot of that stuff comes down to story beats. And there's not much consistency in, like, how you feel the characters are being written. And that's, like, a big divisive issue among the community is how the characters are not as consistent as everybody would like them to see. And I guess it's easier to swallow down some sectionalized consistency of Jace is this way in Agents of Artifice that's cool because I read a whole novel about it rather than this character is this way in this story and then will be interpreted differently by an author in this story. And I guess just shorter fiction kind of brings up that problem because it's a lot choppier for you to move in between the individual stories than for you to just enjoy a novel for what it is. And time passes between them, so you can just be like, well, they stuff like all this happened that made Jace's personality change. Yes, it is <laughs> much easier that way. Yeah. So that is where we are going to end this episode. So I guess it's time for final thoughts. And if I have one final thought for this week, it's that y'all should go buy Godzilla King of the Monsters because it's out on video. Well, I, I guess DVD and Blu-ray. It's out on disc. We don't really call them videos anymore. But I, again, I grew up watching Muppet Babies, so I know what a VCR is. <laughs> but uh, that movie's so great. Okay, we had VCRs. <laughs> I, I definitely had a VCR. I still have a VCR. Do you still have VHS tapes? I have a whole shelf of them. Nice. Uh, well, you cannot buy Godzilla King of the Monsters on VHS, I don't Shame. think. Probably not. Uh, probably not Laserdisc either, for what it's worth. So, sorry. Sorry, the best quality digital format. But yeah, I like so the day we're recording this, I, I watched it earlier today because I was just like, 
I don't want to be on the internet right now. I'm going to go watch this movie. It is so good. It's so fun. So that's my final thought. My final thought is... Oh, I don't remember. Had something. Oh, yeah. My final thought is that while I'm happy that we have a fairy planeswalker now, I am still holding out for Brian Froud fairies. Explain Explain what those are. Okay, go look up the artist Brian Froud. He's the only person who understands fairies. If you like the dark crystal, that's where that look comes from. Hmm. I just googled it and these look good. My final thought is no matter how cool you think you are, putting a booster pack of M20 inside of a s'mores Pop-Tart and (laughs) opening it in video and having that video retweeted by Aaron Forsyth. (laughs) It's not worth Uh, it. Don't do it to yourself. uh, It's the... That is, it's my favorite thing you've ever done. My question is, how did you get it in the Pop-Tart? Oh, it was so difficult. It was... I know, please don't explain it. Please, I do not want to know. I want that to be a mystery. You don't want to know the magic? Magician keeps their secrets? I want it just to be a mystery that somehow you figured it out and it's... It's so funny. I had no idea where that video was going and then you unwrapped the thing and it was the Pop-Tart. It was the funniest thing oh my god it was so good um so all you listeners out there if you also very much enjoy practical jokes and impractical jokes in carrie's case that was extremely impractical yes <laughs> that is fair uh you can get all all the updates on carrie shenanigans in our discord server which you can get access to uh by supporting us on patreon.com slash the cast everyone who supports us uh as i said gets access to our discord where uh you know when we do mailback episodes you can ask us questions there um but carrie does link to all all the little pranky things and they're very funny uh carrie is a huge troll and it's very enjoyable um we have orthoses from around the world discussing all the new exciting things we're about to head into a brand new plane with exciting new world building and fascinating new characters and this is the perfect time to help keep this show running and also get into a place where uh, you have a community to just go nuts on this new set with because it's going to be so exciting I promise I can't talk about it yet next week so soon it's getting close Ooh, I got a theory what is your theory tell me so, like, since there's twins in this set, okay, I think that Oko has a twin named Uwu. Thank you all for listening. This has been the Vorthos cast. <laughs>